Hey everyone, welcome to episode 6, How's That Day? A Culture Rundown with Tom and Phil. I'm Phil Wiedenheft, here to introduce you to my co-host, Mr. Tom Bond himself, the king. Hi! There he is. Each week, Tom and I, we get together and we chat about how our, uh, our days are going. We uh, get together and we work through our thoughts on what's going on in pop culture and in the news and in our lives, and we just kind of catch up with each other. So I'll start this week the exact same way I've started the past five weeks. With the same question. Tom, how's that day? Philly, Philly, cheese, 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 cheese. Is there an echo? <laughs> Fuck you. Uh, there's, um, today's, today's been a little, little busy. Me too. Doing a bunch of errands. Had some more cat drama right before we were supposed to record. My cat weirdo who, uh, had that catheter shoved up his dick two weeks ago. Started vomiting and hissing again, so I ran him over to the vet. Good news is he is not blocked up. Bladder seems good, so I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with him now, but it's nothing. Uh, nothing nearly as serious. I was able to bring him straight home with me after the quick trip to the vet. I was. At what point is this in a more situation? <laughs> well, I'm dying with him, so I hope <laughs> okay. not anytime I, soon. I didn't know if there was going to be a pillow at any point where you're just like you're looking at the bills and you're a, just like cat-sized pillow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're like, oh man. I gotta, I gotta put this cat down. It's, it's, get, it's getting to be a bit much. Welcome to the podcast where we uh, joke about killing animals, especially the the one animal I genuinely love unconditionally. <laughs> nah, he's fine. He, uh, it was a lot of vomit though, man, for a cat. That's good. That's good. I don't want anything. I don't wish harm upon your cat. Yeah, no, it was a lot of puke though. It was funny too. I'm so I'm leaving for a few weeks, and I had a friend over who was, um, she graciously, well, I asked her, but she graciously agreed to watch the cat so she's going to be coming over so she came over today and i was like showing her how the that new fangled litter works the automatic one and showing her how to get to the hot tub if she wants to use it and where to park and everything sure enough weirdo just vomited everywhere right by her feet so we had to cut it short and i had to take her to the vet but uh my dog vomited the other night yeah dogs vomit a lot huh no uh my dog doesn't though so it's weird when my dog does so uh i think it's shell's fault so she says she cleaned it up, thankfully. I, I fed him I, something. Yeah, I think she fed him something, or you know, I forget what it was at this point. But we just woke up to that horrible sound of. I know you said your animals don't sleep with you, but mine does. He's a big guy. He's a big dog, and he just started in the middle of the night, just this like, ah, 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 you know, like very awful noise just to, to wake up to. And then, but I was so tired that I was like, oh, he's throwing up. And she's like, and I noticed that she was getting up to clean, and I was like, okay. And I just fell immediately to sleep. Didn't even. Didn't even wait for her to get back upstairs with like the towels or anything. I was instantly back asleep. The probably the most selfish. But he's I've okay. Been. Ralph's okay now. Yeah, Ralph's okay. He just needed a he just needed a Ralph a little bit. Ralph had to Ralph. Yeah, Ralph's done Ralph. Yeah, done it. You know what's funny? You're you're right. The the sounds that cats and dogs make when they vomit is really gross and like it takes them a few seconds. Like they're working it up and out of their system. You know. Cat hairballs are horrifying. Yeah, I guess they just have no. Obviously, they they have like no shame. I mean, they they probably get a little embarrassed and upset when they vomit, but while they're doing it, they're not thinking about anything other than like their biological need to retch. Whereas humans, I feel like most people when they vomit, they try to stay pretty quiet until the actual act. You know, like sometimes a lot of people when they vomit, it like almost looks like it comes on so suddenly. Yeah. I wonder if that's just like an inborn shame thing or like, you know how most people are always trying to like keep it down as much as they can, whereas cats and dogs are just like, get a vomit, and they just like start going. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm hesitant 
to you know cut the intro so short, but I feel like all this talk of cats and dogs is almost too perfect of a segue into what we're here to talk about today. The truth about cats and dogs. A wonderful Janine Garofalo-Uma Thurman joint from 1998. Today's the 25th anniversary of The Truth About Cats and Dogs, and Phil and I are here to do an audio commentary. Start your Blu-rays in three, two, one. All right, well, I'll start this commentary by saying I thought we were doing the early 2000s action film Cats and Dogs where the cats face off against the dogs. So I was taking notes for the wrong film. Oh, shit. All right, well, let's put this episode on hold then. Everybody pause. We'll be back. Okay. The Japanese archipelago, 20 years in the future. Canine saturation has reached epidemic proportions. An outbreak of dog flu rips through the city of Megasaki. Mayor Kobayashi issues emergency orders, calling for a hasty quarantine. Trash Island becomes an exiled colony. The Isle of Dogs. Okay, we're back. Uh, we figured out what we're talking about, and it's about Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson, the 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 auteur, the the wonderkin. The, the stylist, the formalist, the the stiff, rigid, <laughs> the the, stiff. the re- repetitive, the, the stuck in his ways. Like, the, how do you view Wes Anderson as we talk about his new film, Isle of Dogs? You know, that's a really good question, Phil. Briefly, I first saw Wes's. I saw Rushmore actually in theaters. I remember. So I was thirteen, maybe twelve. It was nineteen ninety eight. I know believe my whole family saw it, like parents, siblings, everybody. And I really loved it then. That was like right at the age when I was starting to get into like a serious film obsession. These more R-rated adult films I was actively trying to understand and seek out. So Rushmore was like right in that wheelhouse. 98? Yeah, 98, right before 1999, which was really the year for uh, film geeks of our age to really blossom, I feel. Hell yeah. But loved Rushmore when I saw it, watched it a bunch, got the DVD, so I was a huge, huge Wes Anderson for quite a long time. And I think, overall, I think I still am. Yeah, I, well, I, I'm i probably the same way. Rushmore was the first one I saw. I watched it at a friend's house after school on pay-per-view. Ooh. And he had just, I think this kid had some kind of weird package or he was like stealing pay-per-view. It was one of these weird things. But he had a lot of access to pay-per-view movies at the time. So we would go over there and watch stuff on occasion. And we watched Rushmore one day and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, it was one, like you said, that I kind of instantly took to, and I was also at that age where I was really like already into, you know, independent films and stuff. So this was like right in that, like, you know, the right time and the right place for me to see it. And it was also one of the first Criterions I ever bought. If not, it's probably in the top two or three ones I ever had, because I remember specifically telling my mom for Christmas, like, I want this edition of this movie. I don't just buy me the regular one with him, you know, punching his fist in the air. I don't want that one. Give me the one with, give me the cartoon drawing one. And so, I, you know, I had that, and then I saw Royal Tenenbaums in high school, and that one just really sold me. That was where I, like, fell in love, and I was like, this guy's the bee's knees. I'm in love for life. And I have been. I've, I've basically been, to varying degrees, you know, in love with his movies. Uh, the ones that I didn't love right away, I loved a little bit later after a few more viewings. And, you know, right yeah. now, um, I, you know, I, I watched Isle of Dogs and I think I left the theater thinking it was maybe one of the lower ranked ones for me. 
But, you know, even after a couple days of thinking about it, I've, you know, I think there's a lot going on in this movie that I wasn't initially giving it credit for. And, uh, you know, I think it's a really enjoyable movie. If not, you know, it's not top tier as far as I'm concerned, but I did like this movie. So have you seen every Wes in theaters since then, since Tenenbaums? Yes. We have Life Aquatic. Uh, yeah, yeah, I saw, yeah, I saw Life Aquatic in uh, my senior year of high school. Right, that was 04, so I was a freshman in college. Uh, Darjeeling. Saw in New York. seen together in New York. No, I saw that by myself, have... actually. I remember that specifically for some weird reason. Oh, okay. Fantastic Mr. Fox. I vividly remember seeing I was still living in New York. Our friend right. Ian, who I believe I've mentioned on the podcast before, fell asleep during the movie for five minutes and started snoring. Mm, and I nudged him, and he woke up and pretended like he had not fallen asleep. I think he admits it now. It wasn't. Uh, I don't think it was a knock on the movie, although he's not really... He's not as big into animated films as I am in general. I think he was just tired for some reason. Maybe we saw like a midnight of it. I think that's probably because Fantastic Mr. Fox is so warm and cozy. And there's that like warm acoustic feel to it. And they're like sipping cider. It makes me want to take a nap when I watch that movie. Or he was probably drunk. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I was trying to give him an out there. I was trying. Don't give Ian any outs. He does not deserve out. All right, well, Fantastic Mr. Fox, I should say, is very important to me. Because when that came out, I saw it with my daughter who... What year was what year was Foxy? I don't even remember at this point. I have 2009? to look. Two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. Okay, so, so she was six at the time. Wow. Uh, so she was six at the time that came out, and we saw that in theaters. I took her to see it, and we she fell in love with that movie, and she has throughout her childhood really loved stop motion, just kind of generally. So basically, near nearly everything that's come out stop motion, we've gone to see together, and Fantastic Mr. Fox became a I guess a dad and daughter you know, family movie. We we started watching it multiple times on DVD and then it became a ritual that every year we watched it in the fall because it's a really like fall movie with like the leaves and like I, I was saying about yeah. the cider and the brown and all that stuff. But, you know, so we've watched that every year and she loved the soundtrack and I used to drive around with the soundtrack in my car and she can sing like every song on the soundtrack and there's some weird songs on that soundtrack that like eight-year-olds shouldn't be able to sing. <laughs> you know, like, like Burt Ivy songs and stuff like that. Like old weird songs. That that particular Anderson film has a special relationship to me through my daughter. Even though I love that movie, it became even like more important to me through her and so that's why it was really important to me that I see Isle of Dogs with her so I went to go with her and we had another dad daughter date and we went to go see Isle of Dogs and she really loved this one too okay so yeah let's we'll go our plan for this episode we're going to go into a more general West talk later but yeah first let's talk about his newest one Isle of Dogs okay I got a question what's your favorite food a double portion of doggy chop from the can mixed into a bowl of broken puppy snaps with a vitamin crushed up into it King's the spokes dog for that. He's the doggy chop dog. Yeah. Used to be. Was that your daily meal? Not always. My master was a school teacher. We weren't rich, you know. You? A center cut Kobe ribeye seared on the bone with salt and pepper. Wow. It was my birthday supper every year. Mine's hot sausage yakitori style. The snack vendor always saved me one on game days. Hmm. Duke? Uh, green tea ice cream. My master had a sweet tooth I probably inherited from her. <laughs> you heard the rumor. Right, about Doggy Chop? Remind us again. Brand. What rumor? Oh, they folded. Oh, no. Mm. Donkey? Doggy Chop folded? How about you, Chief? What was your favorite food? Me? Oh, I don't care. Garbage, trash, scraps of rubbish. I'm used to leftovers. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Of course, I wasn't always astray. Wait, what'd you say? 
I said, of course, I wasn't always a street Really? really? Tell That's us about that. Phil, you said you liked it, but it's lower tier for you. But you said your daughter, Belle, was a big fan, which makes me very happy to hear. I probably agree. I'm, I think I'm closer to you. I would probably put it in his bottom half, which is still a pretty good bottom to be in. Yeah, uh, like, to be clear, like, the entire list is, like, from an A plus to an A minus. You know, it's not, like, a, a very, you know, wide margin for me with him. I'm I'm a little more... You're uh, a little bit more extended? Yeah, I would say, you know, A plus as well. And for his, my favorites of his, down to, like, a... If I had to give it a grade, probably maybe like a B minus or something for the lower tier ones. But uh, this is probably somewhere in between. But I actually had a, the inverse reaction that you did. I think I liked it more immediately after seeing it than I did maybe three days later. Okay. Well, well what? why is that? What fell apart for you in hindsight? I don't want to say fell apart. So, okay. Or what did you like about it coming out? Yeah, yeah. For one thing, just straight off the bat, this is his second stop-motion animation. The first one was Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I told Phil this when Fox came out. I still believe it wholeheartedly. Stop-motion animation and Wes Anderson is just a great marriage. It makes so much sense. I think he's perfect for that form. And there's a lot of that in Isle of Dogs, which I like. Like his very... His symmetrical still framing, the very precise camera movements, it all complements stop motion very well, which is an art form which probably even more than regular drawn animation or definitely computer animation needs to be so particular. I mean, the attention to detail has to be, I mean, it's the most important thing in stop motion animation. And Wes really thrives there. He genuinely really loves those particulars. I think if you wanted to be a stop-motion animation artist for pretty much the rest of his career, he could really excel there. Yeah. yeah that was the highlight for me. Um, when you have a story about dogs, noble, anthropomorphic animals doing heroic things and dealing with trauma, uh, you're going to win me over. <laughs> like, it's really hard to fail me when that's your story. Yeah. I guess... I guess my problem, hmm, this is kind of weird. So I, I don't think my major issues are with the film itself versus Wes Anderson as a filmmaker at this point. I am very much in the minority in thinking that Grand Budapest Hotel is his worst film. And the reason why I think that is that I think it's just a retread of everything that he's about. And uh, Isle of Dogs kind of continued that tradition for me. There's just a lot there that... His like his style and pastiche, I guess, is it's just kind of getting a little old for me. Like I want him to branch out, I think, a little bit more. Yeah, I think he's in the same place that someone like Quentin Tarantino is in right now, or where I think Tim Burton was in the '90s. I think Tim Burton kind of sucks now, but in the '90s and uh, at certain points in his career, he was right here. And uh, you know, you're at this point where. As an artist, you've so clearly defined your style, and everyone identifies you with it, and it becomes such such a point of every film, and it becomes so focused. And like you said, you found it very claustrophobic by the time he's gotten to Grand Budapest. And if you watch Grand, like Rushmore, or especially Bottle Rocket and uh, Royal Tenenbaums, they're a lot looser. Um, yeah, Life Aquatic itself, you know, there's a lot of handheld work. There's a lot of Really, it's a, it's a much raw, rougher movie and not nearly as tight as he, his later films have become. And I think, like 
with all those filmmakers, how those now that they're in their kind of sandbox that they 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 it's basically they have formed the sandbox that they enjoy playing in, and you as an audience member are either gonna like what they're doing in that sandbox at this point, like you're either gonna just be like, I love what they're doing, they can just keep doing it forever and I'm fine. Or you might grow tired of it and frustrated and kind of be like, I wish you were doing just something a little different. Like, you know, we talked about Spike Lee last week. And, you know, that's someone who is like, I'm going to go do a documentary. And then I'm going to go do this, you know, action film. And then I'm going to go do this, like, I'm going to go shoot a play. And then I'm going to go do, the, you know, something else. And he's kind of all over the place. So someone like that's always kind of keeping you on your toes. Whereas these other filmmakers who have such strong voices, even though that's their strength in some way, in some ways, if they don't, develop that voice you know you can feel like they're in a rut even if they are trying different things in the you know details of what they're doing their overall style just kind of overwhelms it regardless yeah i wonder uh, wes is able to break it sometimes but he's largely style over substance i feel and i don't think he would necessarily disagree with that and that's not inherently a negative thing you know like not everything has to be some incredibly intricate moving story. I think this movie does succeed in being pretty moving at certain parts. Um, I definitely got, you know, emotionally affected at a few different moments throughout the film. I I think it's a strong movie. I definitely liked it. Uh, It's just, I think it's also maybe Wes is a victim of expectation because of how successful and talented and unique he is as a filmmaker. So I think, you know, especially film nerds like us are going to get really hyped when a new Wes Anderson movie comes out and we're just kind of assume like, Oh, this is a probably going to be a contender for one of our favorite movies of the year, like in our top 10 or however you want to gauge that, uh, when you want to like, think about cinema in a, in a larger scope or whatever. And I'm just wondering, like the Quentin Tarantino comparison is really apt. So they both came of age as filmmakers in the nineties when you and I were pretty young now you and I are in our early 30s and like us as people and I think as film lovers have grown so much and learned so much and it almost feels like they're running in circles a little bit. And that's not to say they're not capable of making great movies. One of my favorite Wes Anderson movies is is of this decade. I think Inglorious Bastards is a masterpiece. I mean, that was almost 10 years ago now. But yeah, there's just something about uh, the lack of wanting to do something new and not even from a story perspective, like Wes, Wes can tell a different story all the time. He does it constantly. I think one of his strongest aspects as a filmmaker, as a storyteller is how he's able to like navigate between children's stories and, and stories for adults, you know, like he seems to go almost back and forth Yeah, with every movie that he makes. Like you look at something like Budapest and that's a very dark, mature film. Something like this almost straddles the line. I think it's appropriate for both ages. And then there's something like Fantastic Mr. Fox, which works perfectly as a child's movie, you know? Yeah. So he can he can navigate it story-wise, but he doesn't really change up how he how he wants to introduce or tell the story very much. Well, you see, I had I had the inverse reaction of what you said a few minutes ago. I I felt you you're saying that he's style over substance and I kind I know what you're saying. But I, I do think I would argue that, and I'm sure you're not saying that there's not, but there, I think there's a lot of substance here. And I think even Grand Budapest has substance. I think Moonrise Kingdom has a lot of substance. And his later films, even though they have become more rigid in their style, I do think that he has he's found a way to 
weave in this kind of whimsical melancholy into all of his films. So they're often kind of about children or focused on younger people who are rebelling against the system. And that's very, you know, whatever, whether it's the kids rebelling against the family or the, the father rebelling against the family in the Royal Tenenbaums or Max rebelling against the school or, you know, Zizu rebelling against the, the, you know, the greater society and just going on revenge against the shark, even though he's not supposed to like, you know, all these things, it's, it's a very recurring theme, the, you know, the wild Mr. Fox. And now we have another story of these wild animals. And I think even though I agree that there is a lot of style and you can get frustrated by the tendencies of the filmmaker if you're bored by them. But I do think Isle of Dogs is his most political film. And I think that's actually what's kind of aged with me over the last few days is the more I think about the political ideas in the film and how he's this is the most political film he's ever made. And it's also kind of the strangest. It's a lot stranger, I think, visually and a lot bigger and more ambitious than Fantastic Mr. Fox. I think Fox is a better movie and a warmer, like more emotional movie than this one is, but I think this one, he's trying really interesting things with stop motion in terms of scale and, you know, camera placement and blocking, and it's just, it's a beautifully made movie, of course, but, yeah, I do, yeah, yeah, I don't know, did you have any, like, kind of reaction, did you, because I think I left thinking, like, oh, that was a really kind of shallow, just exercise and style, but then I was like, oh, well, there was this one element, and then there was that, and then as I kind of kept looping around, I was like, oh, he actually, like, kind of put a lot in there that I wasn't thinking about. Well, I'll just tell you what I thought, what my reaction was leaving the theater, but then I want you to get into kind of the nitty-gritty of what has elevated the movie for you in the days since you've seen it, okay? Sure. So my my initial reaction was what really stuck out to me besides the stop motion, which I'm a sucker for, but in terms of the story, I thought the portrayal of the dogs and the way he gave them each a distinct personality was really touching and effective. Um, from, you know, Jeff Goldblum's, did you hear the rumor about dog who just seems like the, the town gossip, you know, and like, where does he get all this information? It's one of those, like, it's a weird character trait, but it's very specific and it's also kind of mysterious and you don't know why he's able to know all this information, even though he's always right about this information. It's just like a nice quirk that I thought was really effective and well-timed throughout the movie. Um, either as a way to dole out information or to break up some tension or, or sadness or whatever. Yeah. The, uh, Brian Cranston's dog, I th- his name's Chief, right? Yeah, he's Chief. And he was, uh, I, I really liked Cranston in this. The dog Chief in the movie is uh, kind of a beautiful character, uh, especially his arc and what ends up happening to him. There's a scene, I mean, as we've talked about before, we get into spoiler stuff, so... If you don't want to be spoiled about a talking dog movie, don't listen f- more. Yeah, and by the by the time this episode's posted, like all the other ones, the episode the movie will have been out for a few weeks. So hopefully everyone's seen it. Yeah, if you wanted to see it in theaters, you would have seen it by now. So basically, the so a brief plot of Isle of Dogs is uh, it's like twenty years in the future. There's been an an outbreak of a disease, a canine disease, and in Japan, and they have decided to ship all of the dogs to Trash Island. And it dates back to this centuries-old vendetta that the uh, the ruling family of Japan has against dogs. They're they're cat lovers. They hate dogs, so they want to get rid of them. And you come to realize that it's kind of a, a nefarious plot to get rid of all these dogs, right? So all these dogs are stuck on Trash Island. And this young boy, who's the ward of the ruler of Japan, flies to the island to try to find his dog Spot, who is actually like 
the first dog on Trash Island, and nobody he's kind of a legend in, on Trash Island. None of the other dogs have seen him for a while. These four strays take him in, led by uh, this dog, Chief, played by Brian Cranston, who is the only one who is not a domesticated dog. So he doesn't inherently love the boy like the others, other dogs do. He's reluctant to help him. So his journey and that tension really drives the movie for a long time. And it reaches a point, probably two-thirds of the way into the movie, where Chief and the boy are now stuck together. The other three dogs that he, that are part of his pack have been separated. And Chief is this really mangy-looking dog, and the boy decides to give him a bath. And when he gives him a bath, his coat completely changes to white. He's the freshest, cleanest dog that he has ever been in his life. And your heart just kind of breaks when you realize this tough exterior has been, you know, hiding this, like, life of trauma and hardship he's dealt with. And then... The boy earns uh, Chief's trust. You know, it's not just inherently given to him like it would for most dogs, because dogs are the greatest animals in the world. And I thought that was such a like a beautiful, touching sequence that really won me over in the film. That was the story of Chief and the boy was by far my favorite part of the movie. Where I have issues are uh, more of the the like political intrigue, mystery stuff in Japan. I, I was just kind of wondering like. Okay, why does that? Why is this in Japan? Why are we doing it here? This just all seems kind of silly and over the top, but not in a silly over the top way, like a, like a despicable mean nefarious plot that would be a, a like fun for kids to understand. More yeah. than like it's trying to trying to make some kind of political current statement, but it's not really landing. So that part just felt kind of like it was added on. And I read after seeing the movie. Wes wanted to make a movie about talking dogs and he wanted to make a movie about Japan and he kind of combined the two. And you, and to me anyway, I could kind of feel that, you know, that they weren't like, they weren't inextricably linked to each other. Uh, in terms of the stuff that has aged well for me, I guess is some of it I, I can't even articulate because I feel like I need to see it again kind of with this stuff in mind. Like this viewing, it was just kind of seeing what it was for the first time and now I kind of want to give it another go. The stuff that stuck with me is the way the film, even though the story is told in a very silly kind of child fantasy way, in terms of it seems like it's another one of those books that maybe the young girl in Moonrise Kingdom would be reading. You know, it's one of these weird sci-fi adventure stories. And it feels like there's stuff like, the 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 leader who is you know rigging elections and you know corrupting the media and doing all these nefarious things uh, to corrupt his nation along with there's all this stuff kind of like about racism and stuff and how like the you know the 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 way we treat the others or the way we get rid of things we don't understand or listen to the government you know it it reminds you of like the Holocaust or internment camps or something like that like the way like they're shipped off you know, and put in cages and stuff and said, like, we're going to cage you and put you over here because you're sick and we don't want your, like, disease in our country anymore. So I thought it, like, works as, like, a cool metaphor. And it's not, like, really... I don't think they do a ton with it. I'll, I'll grant you that. And I, I don't know that all of it lands, but, you know, like, especially the student activist stuff, the Greta Gerwig character, I didn't think any of that really worked at all. I thought that was one of the stranger elements of the movie. But I, I well, Especially wish- it was because it was the white woman student who is taking charge of all of these Japanese like I don't think any of it was intentionally uh, offensive but it is a little off-putting 
that it's it's kind of like a use of racial appropriation to have the white woman savior yeah come in and speak up and i get that part of it is because she's the one who speaks english so the audience kind kind of needs her because west decides anyone who speaks japanese unless there's a direct translator involved we don't get subtitles for what people are saying so like when the boy is talking to the dogs in japanese who speak english we don't get any of the boys uh, thoughts translated for us which I, I thought was fine like that didn't bother me at all but yeah to have Greta Gerwig's like young white girl kind of become the hero was a little was a little stinky yeah where some of some of it worked for me and some of it didn't where in terms of the whole like a cultural appropriation of Japanese culture and stuff that you know, I don't really know where I stand on that or exactly how to speak on it because you know, I, I don't know enough about it. Like, I, I'm probably the cliche film nerd white guy who's seen all the samurai films in the Criterion Collection. And, you know, like, I understand a good deal of the references he's making. So for me as a film nerd, it's like, it's not so much about Japanese culture as it is about, like, Kurosawa culture or something like that, you know? Uh, e- even though I, I, I completely understand in terms of using broad stereotypes and stuff, like, uh, you know, we can talk more broadly about how artists use you know, other people's cultures more broadly, especially like Wes Anderson, because he did it in Darjeeling Limited, especially like with Indian culture about like these three white brothers who kind of infiltrate this country. You know, you could th- you could think about the European stereotypes that he did in Grand Budapest Hotel, the kind of New Yorker elite stereotypes he's kind of dealt with in his earlier films. You know, like he's kind of dealt with these broad stereotypes of different groups. Uh, you know, the Italian film festival like snobs at the beginning of Life Aquatic, you know. So, like, he's kind of like, I, I guess you can say that it's not a good case that he's marginalized all these other groups in his movies, too. But, uh, you know, I think it's for him about, like, he thinks of a world, uh, you know, like, oh, I, I have this hotel. Oh, I have this prep school. Oh, I have this boat, you know, or I have this train, you know. And I think here for him it was like, oh, I have Japan. Yeah. And, may, you know, he did have a he did have a Japanese screen or co-screenwriter on the story. So I think he was there to kind of, like, give them some guidance you know i don't know if that helps or anything but i think uh, like the way the subtitles are used i thought that was cool because the movie is largely from the point of view of the dogs and i often think about how my dog doesn't speak english and he doesn't understand what i'm saying to him but i'll say large you know long sentences to my dog as if he does and i so i liked the idea that you as the audience you're in the point of view of the dog and you're kind of looking up at him and you don't understand what he's saying but you'll get through a gesture or through a a noise you'd be like oh i got that i know to sit now or oh he's he's upset or like oh he's he's good he wants me to come over here because he's signaling like you know you still like pick it up so i felt like it put me more in the shoes of the dog so i think some of that worked but then i i completely agree about the white the whiteness of the greta gerwood character and how that was kind of i felt unnecessary and i didn't think that subplot really went anywhere enough to justify that character or that romantic subplot kind of tacked on at the end uh, you know, that I thought was one of the weaker elements of the movie. Yeah, I liked the not understanding what the kid was saying because we're kind of from the perspective of the dogs. I agree with you there. And I think uh, why that part works, maybe less so in other aspects of the movie, is because, yeah, the, these relationships are governed by emotion more than anything else, right? Like, my cat knows when I'm mad at him. Yeah. And I know when my cat's upset or scared or whatever. Like, we can figure that part out. Uh, with each other just by living together or whatever so but about about the uh, appropriation i don't think whatever west does when he tackles these other cultures i don't think none of it is intentionally 
negative or I don't think his spirit is in the wrong place at all. And something like Darjeeling, I'm willing to give him more of the benefit of the doubt because the story is explicitly about three white travelers going to this land. You know? and, he, and he also like wrote that a, movie it, with Jason Schwartzman and Roman, Roman Coppola based on their experience riding a train through India. Right. Well, that nerdy uh, Wikipedia entry aside, I think it's more... It's more understandable when you're when you're directly talking about the outsider coming to experience this country, right? Like Sofia Coppola with Bill Murray's character in Lost in Translation. Like I think from that perspective, I think you're allowed uh, much more leeway to to tackle it from an outsider's perspective. I think Lost in Translation has more broad, stereotypical, exaggerated behavior than this film does. I don't know. I think um, I think they're similar. Like the the Japanese, like the karaoke scene lost in translation. Well, like I think it's funny and endearing. I can see it being problematic. Yeah. I think about that. And I think about the photographer scene, you know, the, like the really like flamboyant, yeah. like stuff like that. Yes. I, I don't, I don't disagree with you at all, but this movie is trying to use the point of view of Japan. Yeah. Whereas lost in translation and Dar- Darjeeling are not, they're using, tourists they're using outsiders to tackle another country so i I actually want to highlight i'm going to put the link in the show notes um allison wilmore who's the co-host of film spotting streaming video unit a really great podcast people should listen to listen to it today she writes for buzzfeed now and she wrote a really great piece on isle of dogs the uh the article is called orientalism is alive and well in american cinema which uh, makes the whole thing sound way more critical than I personally took it. But basically her point is Wes wanted to write this story that takes place in Japan. And instead of taking the time to really try and understand Japan, he used cultural references to act in place of the real Japan. You know, like with the um, scenes of like sumo wrestling and the I think it's the Kaido drums yeah. that they're beating. And it's just like... It's all these cultural landmark stereotypes that we're used to and familiar with and comfortable with, as opposed to really trying to tackle a story about the state of Japan now or in the future or anything like that, you know, which if that was never his goal, fine. But I think it's also fair to to criticize that. Sure. For not really putting in the work, I guess. And that was kind of like that. That was where I kind of stand a few days after the fact of thinking like, oh, yeah, that's kind of, you know, that's how the movie has kind of gone down a little bit for me, whereas the stuff with the animals I think is really strong, and that's obviously the heart of the movie. Yeah, I think all the animal stuff is really strong. I wish, that's what, I agree that I wish, like, I wish the Greta Gerwig character wasn't there, because I wish we could have spent a little bit more time, like, with the other pack of dogs, you know, I'd rather have spent more time with them than with that other character. So, and that's why I said I think the movie ranks a little bit lower for me is because there are some of those subplots that don't work for me and some of the, I think, missteps. And yeah, there's, I mean, even though I agree with you completely that, like you said, his point, the story that, at least the stories that he's telling are from a white person's point of view. He's not really hiding his whiteness, you know. I see what you mean by this one, you know, having Japanese characters taking place completely in Japan and... I guess the the quote unquote white characters are the dogs, which you know it doesn't make sense that these Japanese raised dogs are white and named you know Spot and Chief and Boss and all that stuff. But you know you go with it. I guess here's a question that I've had, and I and I and I 
don't mean it to sound silly because uh, I genuinely have been curious. Like, what do you think separates something like Wes Anderson doing that compared to, say, like the Wu-Tang Clan appropriating like Japanese culture into their like personas and like part of their entire like their entire shtick? That's a good question. Like I, you know, like I was just I was I was thinking about that because I've been listening to Thirty Six Chambers a lot actually, like recently, just coincidentally, yeah. and I was thinking I was like, you know, they've used Japanese culture their entire career, or I was thinking about like Kill Bill, you know, or something like that, and I was just genuinely wondering like, I, I, and maybe you're not the right one to ask either because we're both these like middle class, you know, white boys, you know, so like, what do we know? But like, I, I wonder what separates that for people in their minds, or if there is a separation. Maybe Wu Tang is offensive to people now. I wonder if it's. Maybe it's because Wu Tang came on the scene with that, like that was that was kind of how they represented themselves from the beginning. Yeah, like that was always their stick, you know. Yeah, like twenty five years into Wes's career, he's he's like, oh, I'm gonna make a movie about Japan, and this is what it is. Like Wu Tang, obviously, they're not an authority on Japanese culture, but they obviously have a reference for it. And I mean, particularly martial arts, kung fu, those old movies, like the Shaw Brothers films and stuff like that. That's really their area of love more than anything else. Yeah, but they, that's kind of what we associate with Wu-Tang, you know? Yeah, it's not like Snoop Dogg with his, you know, suddenly he's a reggae artist, you know, he's from like Jamaica. Yeah, you know, for, Snoop for, Lion. And yeah, for one album. For and everyone's just like, hold on, that's not who you are, you know? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question, though. Yeah, you know, that's maybe to be asked to someone who's, you know, smarter than us. Yeah, but I mean, that would be my guess is that, yeah, Wu-Tang was like, this is who we are right off the bat. Exactly. And all right, so moving on from there, we've talked a little bit about how we would rank this film within our filmography. So let's like, let's start with our rankings of Wes Anderson and kind of dive into what we think of him generally as a filmmaker and what our relationship to him has been over the last few years or his working years of our lives. Hey, Mr. Bloom. Hey. Max Fisher. Oh, hi. Hey, Max, my mom just showed up. Is it okay if I leave early? Over. Sure, Charlie. What's the secret, Max? The secret? Yeah, well, you seem to have it pretty figured out. Secret? I don't know. I think you just gotta find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's going to Rushmore. He's been around as long as I've been like a serious film fan, basically. It started with Rushmore, which was 98. It continues to this day. I've seen, with the exception of Isle of Dogs, which I've seen the one time in theaters, I've seen every one of his films uh, at least twice, um, most of them more than twice. And yeah, overall, I'm a really big fan. I think he's super unique. I think he's incredibly talented. Uh, He's really funny when he wants to be. He is able to sneak in some genuine pathos and complexities to his characters. Like uh, I think what he does really well with Tenenbaums and Steve Zissou, he's, he's able to create really complex and Rushmore really complex asshole-ish characters that you root for, which is not an easy feat. The way I described him earlier was this kind of like the melancholy is, is something that's really stuck with me. He reminds me and earlier in his films, he would use the, the music from it, but he, he reminds me of like Charles Schultz and peanuts, that kind of, you're you're hanging out with these kids and there's this warmth to it and you recognize it and it's human but there's also this like underlying sadness across the whole thing that you can't quite always put your finger on but he often has this childish point of view or this really innocent point of view but then it's kind of tinged with this 
loss of innocence in some way or some kind of deep-seated pain. And I think that stuff's kind of what gives the films more richness than, say, a more just blanket comedy that's only focused on giving you laughs. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Charles Schultz because I was I'm, I meant to say when you said that you watch um, Fantastic Mr. Fox with Bell every fall, I think a great double feature would be it's the great pumpkin Charlie Brown and Fantastic Mr. Fox. Those seem like they would go really well together. Yeah, they do. And you know, I, I'm a ch- I'm from a Charlie Brown household, so I always watch peen- <laughs> I'm, I always watch Peanuts during the holidays, and they they do that. There's something about that music that you know Vince. Uh, the the you know the whole trio's music that he did throughout that whole series. Vince Guaraldi, yeah, yeah. The, the all, all that music is so beautiful, and I could listen to it any time throughout the year, even though it's Christmas music. Well, I was gonna say something we uh, we haven't really touched on with Wes, but he's really good with music. I think personally, one of my easily top ten favorite soundtracks of all time is Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, with the the So George, um, David Bowie covers. I remember when we met, you were listening to that a lot. The Mark Mothersbaugh score. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've loved that for years. That was a car staple for a very long time. I remember we were on a train going to Long Island once, and I had the soundtrack on in my headphones, and we, the train was roaring, and it was the Let Me Show You My Boat track. I don't know if I don't know how familiar you are with it. Oh no no no! It was the it was the Ping Island track. The like do 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 that one, and it was just yeah. awesome on the train. That's just, I mean maybe that's just my stoner moment. But like that's the you know I was just like whoa man this this song's great like for matching the moment. It was it's it's a great soundtrack. Yeah, Mark Mothersbaugh fit Wes really well. I wish they would. Um continue to collaborate i feel like he hasn't done one for Wes in a while i know yeah I, he's he's stuck on alexander Desplot right now yeah all right so like a little, give me your rankings let me hear it okay well number nine no surprise i've talked about it it's grand budapest hotel i just i think it's almost like a parody of wes anderson it's so yeah claustrophobic is the right word it's just so formalist kind of nauseating it uh it wants to be funny but it's also super dark the ending is kind of touching, but I almost feel like it's a cheat. I'm just not a fan of that movie. I've tried. I've tried a few times. I know I'm alone there. I know like most people would have it at the top of their list, but yeah. Uh, number eight, pretty much everything beyond Budapest, I like either a, a solid amount to absolutely love. Number eight is Bottle Rocket. It's a good movie. It's funny. It's just, you know, it's Wes figuring shit out. Yeah, he wasn't Wes Anderson yet at that point. Yeah, it's just not up to the level of his of his later movies. Number seven, I would probably go Darjeeling Limited. I, I like Darjeeling a good amount. When I, It was one of those that when I first saw in theaters, I wasn't crazy about, and then I liked it a lot more when I uh, got the Criterion and kind of take my time with it. Still not up to snuff with, with his best films, but I think it's solid and there's a lot there to like. Number six, we just talked about it, Isle of Dogs. And then... My top five, there's like kind of a clear gap between those four and uh, my top five. These five I all really, really love. I'm torn between five and four. They're like neck and neck, but right now I'll say Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, five, and Royal Tenenbaums, four. Um, well, I'll wait till you give your list and we'll talk about them in more detail. The, the top ones? Yeah, number three, I'm going to go with moonrise kingdom nice um number two fantastic mr fox and number one rushmore and real quick before we get to your list what i noticed there 
So in some order, those are my clear top three. Moonrise Kingdom, Fox, and Rushmore. And I think what that proved to me when I, when I wrote this list out is that what I really love about Wes is when he tackles children or young people in his movies, like um, more family-friendly fare with a, maybe a more heartfelt message. Rushmore is maybe the exception to that role with those three movies, but Moonrise Kingdom, besides Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is like pure children's entertainment, on, almost on like a Paddington level, maybe a little snarkier. Much snarkier, yeah. Yeah. Moonrise Kingdom is like his most pure film. It's a great adventure story. It's really beautiful, like coming of age love story. There's just so much that I love about that movie. And uh, yeah, Rushmore is just the OG, man. It's like the thing that got me into Wes. Like, I feel like it opened up a whole new type of art film for me, in a way. Like, understanding composition in movies and really getting focused on that. And beyond that, I think it just holds up. Like, Bill Murray is incredible in that movie. Jason Schwartzman's amazing. It is so funny. Like, biting humor. It really captures how, like... Mean and adult high school uh, humor and relationships can be. I just think it's a masterpiece. All right, my number nine is Bottle Rocket. Same basic reason as you. Like it's just, I, I, it's good. I like it. I just consider it kind of unformed and still very raw. It has great characters and some very funny and very sweet, heartwarming moments. But I, I do think it's kind of you know pretty simple. And you know he would just go on to do greater things. Number eight. Uh, I think this is funny because I just was kinder to the movie than you were, I think, a little bit. And I, so I my number eight is Isle of Dogs. And a lot of that, I think, is because I did like it. I did have problems with it. And right now, I want to see it again. So that's why it's really low is because it's hard for me to rank it higher than a lot of these other films, which I have a kind of a much longer relationship with. And I kind of know a lot more where I stand on them. So that's why it's so low. Uh, number seven, Dar- Darjeeling Limited, same as you. I think this one is more interesting than a lot of other people give it credit for. Uh, I-, I agree that it is flawed and maybe the m- the most rich white people problems of his movie. I mean, he has a lot. He has maybe several of those, but I think that's maybe the one that has the most of that. And I remember when that movie came out, people were kind of turning on him for a lot of the same reasons. I think you're kind of turning on him now, where people thought like, "Oh, you're getting very repetitive." And I don't like these characters. I think those brothers are a lot harder to like than, say, the Tenenbaums or Max Fisher were. So you have those brothers and, you know, he's doing Rolling Stone songs and Kink songs and people running in slow motion. And I think people were just kind of like, okay, I I got it, you know. And people really turned on it, but they came back with Mr. Fox. So, you know, that's uh, Darjeeling Unlimited. I was always kind of with it. I, I know people were against it for those reasons, but and I agree. W- well, with it's people. funny. It's funny that you mentioned. It's funny that you mentioned white people problems. I think the other movie that you can really talk about that with is Tenenbaums. But I think the difference there is Tenenbaums had such self awareness. You know, like the yeah the craziness of those characters, and you know, I think he loves all the characters that he writes. But he was really able to view Tenenbaums like from a distance and really like examine their warts and not try to sugarcoat them. Maybe it's like you said, because this was their, their own trip, the three of them that they did together. Yeah. But I think one of Darjeeling's faults is maybe that he's a little too like in love with those characters in that journey as some eye opening, like mind expanding experience. Yeah. And what I'm noticing as, as I make my way up the list is, 
I think the ones that I have lower on my list are the ones that I am emotionally connected with the least as I'm looking at them. For me, as I progress higher up the list, uh, the ones where the emotional beats mean the most to me or are connected the most with me. And Darjeeling, the stuff at the end where there's a, a shot of the Rolling Stones song where it's doing this circle shot that's amazing. It ends on a tiger. It's kind of going through all the compartments and introducing all the characters. But ultimately, the journey the brothers go on I find it very good, but not quite as moving as some of his other movies. So my number six is Grand Budapest. I don't have, I understand where you're coming from with it. And maybe I find your view of it so intriguing that I'm not able to watch it the same way anymore. Um, I think maybe your view has spoiled the movie for me a bit. I'm like, is this too much? Good. But you know, when I watch it, I think it's fun. I love the story and I love, I love the character. I just love fines. I think that's a great character. And the movie just, I think what sells me on it, I, I understand that you think the style is claustrophobic, but for me, it's also just so damn funny. Like, I really, really laugh at him a lot in the movie, and that kind of keeps me afloat with the movie. Uh, Life Aquatic is my number five. That was the one that I think I personally struggled with the most at first. Uh, it is Obviously, it's higher on my list now. I love the movie now. It cracks me up. But that for me, that was the first Anderson movie that I saw that I didn't love immediately, and I had to like watch it a few more times. And so the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, this is kind of long and a little scattered. And I still think that about it. It's a little, it's, it's a little unformed and you know, could pro- maybe use some tightening because it's, it's a little meandering at times, but that's kind of what's nice about it is it's this like hangout movie. So I kind of had to embrace that aspect of it. And you just kind of had to enjoy hanging out with this crew on, and the multiple adventures they go on. And, you know, it's, it's a foe, man. Yeah, and it's so goddamn funny. Well, that's that I think that's the other thing yeah. about that movie. That one is probably the funniest, like just pound for pound, like full of laughs of all of them. So that one's amazing. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, number four, Moonrise Kingdom. I agree with you. It's a beautiful movie. It's maybe the most kind of perfect distillation of what he of everything he's doing in terms of the tone of it, the the warmness of the New England setting mixed with like the Boy Scout aesthetic and the girl who reads and the beaches and like the French music and the girl the, who reads like <laughs> I, I like I, the way I'm I'm talking more about the the book she's reading and like the you know those types of the tone of those books matching kind of the adventure that she wants to go on and mixed with like the play and it's just kind of a beautiful for me I, that's kind of a world i want to live in i want to like go visit that island so i think that's what's so wonderful about that movie to me and i just i really enjoy the, the kind of weird like the idea of a boy scout troop hunting down this lone boy scout who's run away and they're all like vengeful and have like their scissors out for him like that kind of makes me laugh like those kinds of stories just kind of generally make me laugh and so that's why that one's so high for me. Are your foster parents still mad at you for getting in trouble so much? I don't think so. We're starting to get to know each other better. I feel we're in a real family now. Not like yours, but similar to one. I always wish I was an orphan. Most of my favorite characters are. I think your lives are more special. I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about. Love you too. My number three I talked about earlier is Fantastic Mr. Fox. And a lot of that, like I said, is the emotional attachment I have to it. And it's also just so goddamn beautiful and to look at and so warm. And I've watched it probably more than any of his films. But that's, I would say, largely because of my daughter, not because I personally threw it in. 
as many times as she wanted to watch it. And number two, Rushmore. That's like you said, the grand one of the. It's just perfect. Uh, sometimes I think about the Ooh La La ending with the faces song and the curtains closing as the as he's dancing and everyone's dancing around him, and it's so perfect and it makes me so happy. And that's kind of the feeling I love having when I leave his movies. Is that sense of like, oh wow, I got I met these beautiful characters who cracked me up and got into some trouble and caused some hell, and there was a great soundtrack. And it ended in this really beautiful place that I feel satisfied. And that movie holds holds up wonderfully. I I can't wait to show my daughter. I don't think she'd like it as much right now, but I think like in a year from now she'll be she'll be right for yeah, it. Yeah, wait till she gets to high school, then she'll love it. Rushmore also has my single favorite comedy moment of any of his movies. Can which you guess is which one it is? Can uh, you guess? I'm gonna guess from Rushmore. I I'm gonna guess the Something to do with the play. I'm going to guess one of the plays. Bill Murray on the phone blocking the kid's basketball shot. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. That, that's, that, my fa- that, that's my favorite moment. I laugh at him, that, that whole sequence of him walking on the phone, just like crawling over the fence and you know running over it's the... so good. Even the way he's holding the bike as he walks makes me laugh. You know, there's just everything about it's so great. Yeah, it's great. And I, I love his speech early in the movie, too. It, it has always made me laugh when he gets up there in the church and says, you know, find someone rich and, you know, suck them dry. <laughs> <laughs> it's all, you know, it's it's such a funny movie, and it's it's I could return to it endlessly, and I probably will for the rest of my life. I think it's one of the great movies of the 90s. Yeah. And so my number that one... basketball moment just perfectly encapsulates that character, too. He's just such a cynic and such a bastard. Like, he... There's no reason for him to do that, and he just he does it anyway because he can't stop himself. I love it. Anyway, you're number one. Yeah, Herman Bluth is a very sad, troubled man. The Royal Tenenbaums is my number one. That is, like I said, that was the big kahuna burger for me in high school. It came out. I saw it in theaters, and it really just blew me away. And I, I was, you know, I was in that really formative age when you had I hadn't seen that stuff before. I wasn't quite as familiar with Salinger yet. I wasn't as familiar with the Glass family and all the references that it was making to that and to Charles Schultz and to uh, the New Yorker and to even stuff like the French Connection and stuff. I wasn't as familiar with all that yet, but what was beautiful for me about that movie was it was an early discovery of an auteur voice who was, you know, coming of age in my early form of years of watching movies. So he was just such a current voice who was in that realm, like I said, with Tarantino, who was releasing authorial movies with great soundtracks, great characters, great hilarious dialogue that was memorable. And you just felt so like just madly in love with these movies. And you know, that's why they've been so influential and they've stuck around and everyone kind of just acknowledges that he's, you know, an incredible talent. So even as his people's enjoyment of his movies may have varied over the years in terms of which ones people like and which ones they don't. I think everyone at this point has to acknowledge that, his consistency and his continuing because you know whatever you may think of Isle of Dogs it's a very creative original story you know like he's still you know he's still got a lot in him and there's a lot of gorgeous design and a lot of beautiful work done in that movie so he's still you know one of the great visionaries working right now I I agree with you I Tenenbaums is one I, I liked a lot more when I was younger and it hasn't like slipped for me or anything I don't know it's, it's one I need to revisit it's been several years but it was um Dad and Rushmore were kind of always one and two for a long time until Fox and Moonrise Kingdom came along. So I'd be curious to check it out. So Tenenbaums was 2001. 
off the top of your head, would you say that's your favorite movie of that year? I'd have to look at the year, but because uh, who knows at this point? But I would guess so. But that was also was that the year of like Fellowship of the Ring and stuff like that. That was the first Lord of the Rings. That was also Mulholland Drive. Was two thousand one. In the mood for love was maybe two thousand. AI was two thousand and one. Uh, these are definitely higher than AI. AI is, I think, an interesting movie. Um, these, I think, are like capital G, just master or capital M masterpieces. Uh, the Royal Tenenbaums. I see what you're saying in terms of of it needing to, you know, you need to revisit it and maybe it not having having aged as well. But for me, it's the most emotionally fulfilling and there's nothing quite in his filmography that tears me up as much as the end of the film when Gene Hackman says to uh, Bill, Ben Stiller has crashed the car or the, the car has been crashed and the dog has been killed and Ben Stiller says to his father you know I've had a really hard time this year and Gene Hackman touches his shoulder and says I know you have and it's just the way he says it I tear up every time I watch it it's a beautiful moment and I love that family. And it's just, it's another one of his movies where I wish I could just go to that version of New York. I love the real New York, but I want to go to this weird Wes Anderson version of it too. And go hang out with Gene Hackman, who is one of my all-time favorite actors. That's another reason that movie is number one, is I fucking love Gene Hackman, and I fucking love that character of Royal Tenenbaum. He makes me laugh so goddamn hard that I, he should have gotten an Oscar for that movie as far as I'm concerned. He didn't, and then he decided to retire, and we pretty much haven't seen him since. Yeah, thank God. Welcome to Mooseport was what he decided to go out on, though. Dude, you got to get back on Yeah, may, uh, maybe we'll do an episode where we review all of his crime thriller novels. Do you want to read all those? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'll do that sometime in the next you know few years. We'll, we'll get around to it. Okay, your favorite movie of 2001, is it Jurassic Park 3, or is it Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes movie with Mark? You know, I talked to somebody, I swear to God, less than a week ago, who's telling me how much they like the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes movie. They were just telling, it was at work, and it was an intern, and they were like, you know, I've heard from people that it's not good, but I... I love that movie. I've loved it since I was a young kid. I watch it all the time. And I was like, you watch that all the time? And they're like, yeah, I like that way more than those new ones they're making. And I was like, wow, man, wow, that is a unique perspective. The girl I dated last year had uh, two movies that she loved to death. One of them was Rat Race, which I actually kind of agree with her. It's pretty. It's a really fun. It's a fun. It's movie. a fun movie. The other one was, the other one was Bedazzled. <laughs> I think. I think there was just a period of like two years that any movie that came out that year, she loved it. I don't know. Well, why. she could, maybe she's just a big Brendan Fraser. Yeah, bedazzled. I was like, that's a very, it's a very bizarre choice. Well, Brendan Fraser, man, he's making a comp. Did you read that? Uh, that Brendan Fraser piece was. It in I, the New Yorker, I don't know if it was in the New Yorker, but yes, I read. I think it was a GQ profile, uh, something like that. Yeah, where he it's it's called like what happened to Brendan Fraser. It's super sad. And, he gets stressed out in the beginning. Yeah, he gets stressed out in the beginning. He's like, sorry, I just need to shoot this bow and arrow. And he like just nails a couple bullseyes in a target in his backyard. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, yeah. It's like, shit, man, don't <laughs> fuck with Brendan Yeah, and then, yeah, it's going to be like a we talk, we need to talk about Kevin's situation soon if we don't like, you know, get him some work. But he's working on, he's on Trust. He's on that new show now. He's apparently very good on it. I haven't watched that yet, but, you know, I'm, hopefully I can find some time for it. That's what I'm saying. That guy, that guy Ryan Murphy, man. Ryan Murphy revives careers. It's crazy. Well, what happened with John Travolta outside of the American Crime Story? He's so goddamn ridiculous in that show, but he, I haven't seen him working in the last couple of years. No, but he got a gig. That's true. Yeah. And he did produce that as well. So good on good on Travolta. I'm always happy to see him work. I wish he would do some more serious work. Anyway, we're getting way off topic. Off topic. So is there anything else you want to say about Wes? You know, anything like 
you know, we talked about his appropriation and his whiteness. I would say that, like I kind of mentioned earlier, I would double down on the fact that he's one of those directors that, for me, I think what's been so important about him in my life is that I'm someone who loves to read interviews with directors and I have my entire life. And he's been one of those directors who's been very kind with his influences and talking about what went into every film. And since every film's been a little different, you know, so like Royal Tenenbaums is something like, you know, New Yorker pieces like we talked about or the the Glass family from the Sal- from Salinger and stuff like that. And I would basically hear about this stuff and that is what would draw me to go read it and track that stuff down because I wanted to read all this stuff or figure out what everyone was influenced by. And same with Tarantino, you know, he'd recommend movies or have these bands on the soundtracks. And I was like, who are these people? And it would kind of be this web into a whole other world of music or a book or an author, whatever it was. And that's one of the reasons I've cherished Wes Anderson in particular, as well as other auteur directors who have done similar things like that. That's just like, really, I can't describe what an impact that's made on my life and the stuff I've read and been influenced by. Yeah, I would agree with all that. I think Wes is a, is, he's a hugely important modern American filmmaker. Uh, he's a very unique talent uh, and unique in a way that I really appreciate because unlike a guy like Tarantino, who with Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction inspired all these, you know, dime store knockoffs, you can't really replicate what Wes is doing. Like, it's a hard style to rip off because it is so unique. To there's him. been attempts like I remember Submarine, dude, the Richard Iode film from a few years. You know, there's been the the quirky indies have definitely tried to take uh, some qualities from him. Well, but quirky and yeah. Of course, he influences people, but it's hard to really rip him off without it being so obviously like, oh, you're trying to do Wes Anderson that people can't even do it. Oh, yeah, I'll grant you that. Yeah. So he definitely has his own corner. He has his own corner of the film world, which I appreciate. I guess I would say keep doing stop motion. You're really good at it, Wes. Maybe try maybe try to just drop your style, though, and, and see what you can come up with. Like maybe... Um, Maybe try to do something a little akin to like what Paul Thomas Anderson did with Phantom Thread, where him and Daniel Day-Lewis kind of collaborated on the script together. Maybe just try like some exercise and see what you make of it. You know, just like flex your muscles a little bit and try something new. Um, we, we have so many good movies that we can watch forever. I would like to see him go completely left field. Like when you say project. left field, do you mean like... A serious drama with no laughs at all? Or do you mean like all handheld, like raw, you know, like on the street filmmaking, you know, or something like that? Do you want him to just like make a crazy left turn that you didn't see coming? Or do you think like that's impossible for him? Either way. Um, I don't want to like define what it should be. I just think it'd be cool if if we saw him do something completely different at this point. I mean, we talk about how influential Rushmore was. That was, that was 20 years ago at this point. I think maybe it's time to... Um, just try something completely different. Yeah, it feels like maybe he has his stop motion films and he has his live action films at this point, and he's kind of refined his style to a a, a perfect. It's like a, he has these two lanes that he's in, but he's just kind of slowly where he's switching back and forth between live action and stop motion, and just kind of slowly refining the exact same thing over and over again. And there's been, you know, there's been a lot of filmmakers who you could argue have just been making the exact same film over and over their entire careers, and you know there are worse things, but some movies, I think when you look at the filmography as a whole, it looks great and you can see like, oh, he was doing that over there and he was really interested in this over here. But, you know, sometimes movie to movie, maybe you'll feel like you're in a rut compared to someone like Steven Soderbergh, who's doing insane stuff every new movie. 
And I, Isle of Dogs was better than Unsane. I will grant. Yes, it definitely that. was. Uh, it will definitely be somewhere on my list for this first half of the year. Uh, can't wait to do that episode. Our first half of the year list. Whenever when, that's coming up, it's gonna be. That's a June episode. We're already we're already in April. We're in April. Yeah, I guess uh, July Fourth episode. Yeah, we're it's coming up. So get your get your list ready. It's coming up. Oh, you know I got a list ready. That's our episode on Wes Anderson. I will, you know, we'll wrap up the episode the same way we always have, and uh, you know, we'll talk about some some recommendations, some rants, some some soapboxing, some some fisticuff throwing, you know, whatever whatever have you. What Tom? What is it today? What is what is crawling up your ass, or what's you know beating in your heart? What, what's it gonna be? You know, I don't really have anything. Uh, I don't know that my week has been kind of wrapped up with prepping for my trip and uh, watching basketball and hockey playoffs that's kind of, i've been pretty boring what's this news i've heard about tom brady that i saw at the gym today yeah apparently he's still on the fence about if he's gonna play next year he's gonna play i'm not worried about it and you know what if he retires he retire. he he's fucking 41 years older he's gonna be he's won five super bowls dude just won the mvp he's fine you, so you think i i don't think he's retiring any i think he's still got like four or five more years in him at this point no he's not he's not retiring there's all this drama about his uh his health guru slash business partner has like a training facility um, adjacent to the stadium where the Pats play in Foxborough. Yeah. And I guess last year there was a lot of drama about other players starting to train there and not using the official teams, medical staff and blah, blah, blah. I think it's just, it's this whole little, you know, reality show type drama that's been going on, whatever. I don't, one of the good things about not living in Boston is I don't have to hear it like all the time on the radio and shit, you know, I can kind of just tune into the games and watch those. And, but right now it's all about, uh, Celtics and Bruins, both in the playoffs, both doing well Celtics, despite all their inner injuries, won their first two games of the playoffs. So they're looking good. Really enjoy this time of year, man. I just, every night it's, uh, something fun to watch and be dumb. I've actually, Oh, I, I, let me recommend. Um, so what I've been doing, uh, when I don't really want to focus on a game and have it in the background is I like to um, read graphic novels sometimes while I have uh, the playoffs going on. So I want to recommend the comic book called Paper Girls. It is by Brian K. Vaughn, and I'm going to Google the artist. It's about these uh, four 12-year-old girls in 1988 who are doing a paper route I believe it's the day after Halloween, November 1st, and shit just goes crazy. Cool. Like an alien spacecraft-type portal lands in someone's basement. These like weird people dressed up as mummies speaking a different language show up. Time travel gets involved. It's just super weird. It's by the guy, uh, Brian K. Vaughn, who is writing Saga as well simultaneously, which is, in my opinion, still the best comic book on the market today. So, uh... I read the third trade paperback last night, 
uh, Cliff Chang is the the artist. He's really good. But yeah, Paper Girls. Is it an ongoing series or just like a limited graphic novel run? It's it's ongoing. I want to say they're probably around like issue 20 something right now. Okay. I just read the third trade paperback, which collected issues 11 through 15. I'm always a little behind. I don't buy individual issues. I like to wait for the trades because I think they're nicer and easier to collect. But yeah, Brian K. Vaughn, he's the man. Uh, it's got like a big Stranger Things vibe, but it's, um, yeah, the main characters, four 12-year-old girls, all with distinct personalities. It's really entertaining. Highly recommend that. Cool. Paper girls. My two recommendations, I'm going to throw one recommendation out for you because you didn't bring it up, and it's okay. You'll get excited when I bring it up. And the second one is just kind of like a re-recommendation of, some, of stuff we've already talked about. The first one is picking up Shutter, the app, so that you can get ready for the just-announced Joe Bob Briggs marathon so i know that that news came out this week and you are super super excited about that so i was going to recommend you know getting prepared for that because i so much for bringing that up yeah i do remember i you know what was funny when that news was announced because i i think this was my reply to your message was i had literally just i think that day or the day before been at work talking with a coworker about different different uh different people that had hosted local horror shows around the place and we started talking about him and how we missed him so it was it was funny that that was announced that day yeah for those who don't know joe bob briggs did uh monster vision on tnt i believe it was on friday it, nights. either friday or saturday um, nights I, yeah mid to late 90s was its heyday with him and i miss those uh i miss like the horror host type thing you know i was found yeah those very comforting and entertaining when i was a kid and Joe Bob Briggs was kind of the most accessible because he was actually national. You know, most, I think, cities have their local guy, like Gooley in Philadelphia or whatever. But yeah, Joe Bob Briggs, he's doing a 24-hour shutter marathon where he's going to host a slew of movies. Uh, it's uh, They haven't announced it yet, but it's a Friday in June of this year. And Shutter itself is another recommendation. I don't know if you have it, Phil, or if you've used mine at any point, but it is a great app if you're a horror fan. Highly recommend it. Joe Bob, when I, I, I've always thought he looked like Diedrich Bader, you know, that one actor from the Drew Carey show who is one of his good friends. Yeah. I've always thought, he, whenever I see yeah. his picture, yeah. From I always think Space. He, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I always think he looks like him. Uh, and my, So I was going to recommend that, and my other recommendation, I've mentioned it a few times, is just Filmstruck. So, like, the way you fill your time at night is by throwing on some sports games. I throw on classic cinema, not not to be too high-minded, because I usually throw it on to fall asleep to, because I find old movies very relaxing and comforting. So, you know, that's where I watched Grey Gardens, which we talked about in our last episode. And it's also just been exploding lately, because the Warner Brothers deal that they had with Warner Brothers Archive and Turner Classic Movies has meant that... At this point, there's no app that you can have right now that has more great cinema on it. You know, it's it's the kind of app where, you know, if you go to Netflix or Hulu or any of those, they'll have like one or two older titles. But this has now what now that the Warner Brother titles are making its way, you're going to have stuff like Casablanca on there. And, you know, I'm sure Citizen Kane at some point and, you know, those massive titles, along with the amazing art house stuff that Criterion's been uh, curating for decades at this point. So I, you know, I wanted to recommend that I lately, uh, the two movies I've been watching, I watched the big sleep this week, which was a wonderful rewatch. It's it, I've watched it a number of times over the years and I just kind of throw it on for comfort food at this point. I love Bogart movies. So, you know, go watch stuff like that. And the other one that I, I discovered that I wanted to recommend is called act of violence. It's a uh, Fred Zinneman movie. He's the guy who made um, A Man for All Seasons, High Noon, you know, From Here to Eternity, that 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 stuff. And they were featuring him 
on one of their thing on, on one of their like on the main page. So I started just digging through his titles and one of the plots just sounded really cool. So I dug into it and watched the movie. It was a really quick like 80 minute watch and it was fucking awesome. I love the movie. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll read the sum the summary of it for you. An embittered, vengeful POW stalks his former commanding officer who betrayed his men's planned escape attempt from a Nazi prison camp. So it's this like really small noir about this guy seeking vengeance against his former commander in like small town America. And it reminds me a lot of a history of violence. And it's, it's, it's just fucking awesome. I love it. It was a small, quick watch. You know, so anybody out there who's looking for, who likes that stuff, I would recommend that. So that's what I've been watching lately and that's what I wanted to recommend this week I, I feel like I've recommended enough stuff on recent episodes that I'm going to have to go back on the next episode and start complaining about shit again it's called Act of Violence Act of Violence yes by Fred Zinneman cool yeah Filmstruck is um, it's a very worthy app for those of you especially like what Phil just said I'm also a big fan of uh, like old screwball comedies and romantic old Hollywood movies like it happened one night. They, I know they have all the Thin Man movies, which, which I'm excited. I, I watched watch. the Thin Man. Yeah, yeah, if you like classic Hollywood, like that, those transatlantic accents that they used to do all the time, honey. Then, uh, yeah, film structure, your your dude. They also have like the entire Criterion collection. You know, that's that's what I've been up to. You know, I, hopefully the rest of the week goes goes okay. I hope your cat is okay. Thank you, buddy. All right. Well, that's the show for this week. You know, now we're gonna. It's time to wrap things up a little bit. Please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every one of those helps us out incredibly, and you know, helps us get word out for the show. Give us five stars if you can. You know, if you like the show, please, please, please let us know. We love it. We would appreciate it. Make a comment. You know, leave us a little note. Tell us what you like, what you don't. Anything you say helps us, gives us more encouragement to keep making these episodes. Uh, I want to thank Zach Pitts for the intro and outro music. That's a big help. You know, we love the music. Thank you, Zach. And uh, please find us on Twitter at Big Fat Bond. That's all one word. And you can find me uh, by typing in Phil Wiedenheft. Just uh, look for us there. So, uh, Tom, I'll see you next week. Okay. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.